Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for all that you offer us in your Son and by your Spirit. As we sang tonight, Lord, would you be present? That's always our prayer, that you would be here, that you would meet us here, that we'd be changed by the encounter, God. Lord, we look to you tonight. We look to your word. We long to hear you. As Aaron said, you are the God of revelation, the God who reveals himself in one of the major ways, if if not the most important way that you do that is through your beautiful word. And we are so fortunate to have such a wealth of knowledge, such a wealth of revelation in your word translated in the English language that we can read and, and, and parse and try to understand and just mull over what a gift, what a gift we have, the wealth of ability to look at your word and study it and understand it. Not every people can claim to have that. There are peoples out there even today that just have a few verses, just have a few words offered to them in, in their native tongue. And God, we have been so blessed, an abundance of blessing in exploring your word. So I pray tonight that we would see you, that we'd come face to face with you, come into an encounter with you as we read Genesis 38 tonight, God. Would you be present? Would you be near? And Lord, in all things we pray, would glory and honor be brought to your great name, to the sacrifice and work of your Son, and to the power of your Spirit who works in each one of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Aaron, Tyler. I appreciate that. I love having you guys up here to, to lead well, tonight we're going to continue on in Genesis, which we're nearing the end of. We're getting closer bit by bit. We'll be about till Christmas. So again, man, that is fast approaching. It's quick. It's going to be here quick in 2021, gone like that. But tonight we're going to read Genesis 38 and we're going to read the whole chapter. Now, what's interesting about this, of course, is that Genesis 38 is kind of a break in the story of Joseph. We're looking for Joseph. We're, we're following his story. And all of a sudden, there's going to be this story about Judah. Now, if you remember, what, what's happened is this section started in Genesis 37, and it said this is the family history of Jacob. So we shouldn't be too surprised that, that there's more to this story than just Joseph. We should expect that we're going to hear about his sons. And if you remember what I told you, is that the people of Exodus, the nation of Israel, are trying to understand how they came to be. What was their story? And one of the key focuses of that is how did Judah and Ephraim, who we haven't even met yet, how did they become the, the most prominent tribes, the most important tribes, the, the biggest? Well, tonight is going to start to answer that question as it relates to Judah. But it's a pretty dark story, I'll be honest with you. This story is not a light story. It's heavy. And traditionally, it's referred to as Judah and Tamar. That's how we know it, Judah and Tamar. It's this story, a, a dark story of sexual immorality and of death, of God condemning people to death, and then, of course, uh, an illicit, an illicit uh, tryst that ends up resulting in the continuation of the line of Abraham through Judah. 
But I've called tonight, despite all that darkness, despite all the evil we're about to see, I've titled tonight, Judah the Repentant. Now that's not typically what you think of when you read this story, but I'm going to show you how it's true. I'm going to show you in in the text how that is true and how important it is to the story that we're reading. Many scholars don't even understand why the story's here. Why is this random interlude here about Judah in the middle of the story of Joseph? Well, we're going to find out tonight. The chapter begins like this. And it came about at that time. Now, remember where we were. Joseph has just been sold into slavery. So at about that time, when Joseph was sold into slavery... Judah departed from his brothers, and he visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. Okay, now already, already we're seeing signs. Now, they're small signs, but there are signs that Judah's a deeply sinful man. What are they? Well, one... He's marrying a Canaanite. That has not gone well so far, has it? Remember, Abraham made sure, my son Isaac must not marry a Canaanite. He must go back to the land of his people and find of his own people, of his own kindred, a wife. And he sent his servant off. That was Genesis 24. And then now, later, we have Jacob, the same story. Jacob sent off back to Laban. So that he can find a wife of his own people, of his own kindred. And what was, what was it that sparked that? Well, it was that Esau had married two Canaanite women, two Hittite women. And it said it made their family miserable. Rebekah and Isaac were miserable because of his wives. And here, now, Judah's doing the same thing. He's marrying a Canaanite. It also uses terminology that should be familiar to us. It says he saw... And he took. Do you remember the first time that series of verbs shows up in the Bible? Man, it was a while back for those of you who've been here for Genesis. It showed up in Genesis 3. Eve saw and she took of the fruit of the tree. And who else saw and took? Well, the seeing and taking was what happened when Sarah took Hagar She saw Hagar and took her and gave her to Abraham, okay? Anytime you see that repetition, the seeing and taking, it's alluding to something. And what it's alluding to is sinfulness, saw and take. So he saw and took a Canaanite wife. Not a smart move, Judah. But she conceived and she bore him a son named Ur. And then she conceived again and bore him a son named Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chazib that she bore him. Okay, so three sons he has. Now, despite some of these bad signs, having three sons is a blessing. It's a blessing. Let's find out what type of men they are. Now, Judah took a wife for his firstborn, right? This is the father's right. He's, he's meant to provide a wife for his sons. We saw that with Abraham. We saw it with Isaac. And now Judah is doing the same thing. He's providing a son, excuse me, providing a wife for his son, his firstborn heir. 
And what does happens? What, what, what transpires? Well, he ha- takes this wife, and her name is Tamar. But for some reason, Judah's firstborn heir was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Now, that's unspecified. We don't know what happened. But for whatever reason, he is a sinful person. He's a deeply evil person. And so the Lord takes his life from him. We don't know the story. But there's something there that the Lord finds grievous enough to take his life from him. So before we go on, we're gonna, I'm going to have to explain some concepts to you. One is the concept of leveret marriage. Okay? This is a, t- a standard Old Testament uh, process. And what it is is this. When a man would die without children, he's married He has a wife, but he has no children. It was his brother's responsibility to bear children for him, to to produce children for him that would end up taking his name, that would take his spot. And the point of that was to continue the line of the one who had died. But there's another important aspect, and that's this. The woman, the wife, would be taken care of. See, one thing we know about these cultures is that women had no power. They had no legal authority. They had no protection. And so what would happen to widows more often than not is if they didn't have someone to provide for them, if they weren't back in their father's house, if they didn't have sons that they were raising who would look out for them, they were left destitute. They were left with nothing. Often they would become prostitutes because they had literally no way provide for themselves. They had no way to make any living to take care of themselves. And so that process was was ordained by God to protect the woman, to take care of her, that the brother would come in. He would marry the wife of the, the older brother. He would produce children, and the first children, the first son, would take the place of the one who had died. It would be the, the older brother's name that he was attached to, his line that he was attached to, and, and that would become the firstborn. But after that, the rest of the children belonged to the, the younger brother. But at first, he had to produce an heir. He had to produce someone to continue the line of his lost brother. And so that was the duty of the younger brother. So that's what happens here. Heir has died. Tamar is childless, widowed. She has nothing. So Judah said to Onan, his younger son, right? Now this, we're at the middle child. Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew, he knew that the offspring would not be his because they would be his older brothers. So when he went in to his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Now, we'll stop there. This is interesting. I don't, I don't need to get too much into it, but I'll explain this, and this is, is interesting. This, this passage traditionally has been used to reference masturbation, which has nothing to do with the passage. In fact, if you look up the word onanism in the dictionary, it literally just means fa- masturbation. Now, someone translated this, in a way that, that they understood that to be the essence of the passage, and that's passed down through the years. But they've missed the point. The Bible's not trying to address that reality. 
That's not what's important. In fact, what happens here is much, much darker than that. See, because what Onan is doing is is he's going in to fulfill his own sexual gratification, but refusing to procreate, refusing to impregnate his sister-in-law to raise a child for her. So he pulls out and spills his seed on the ground is what it says. What's so evil about that? Well, one, he doesn't fulfill his duty, and two, he is using this woman for his own ends. It's a dark desire. He's married her, and yet he refuses, he refuses to let offspring come of it. This is solely for his own sexual gratification. It's a dark impulse. That's what Onan's sin is. To use this woman for his own needs, his own, I shouldn't even call them needs, use him for his own wants, his own desires, his own ends. And to do nothing, either to care for his brother or for his now wife. And so what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took Onan's life also. Judah does not seem to be on a good track record with his sons so far. So who's left? Little Shelah, right? There's one boy left. So Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For Judah thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brother's. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So she goes back to be with her family, not the family she's been brought into of her husband, and really two husbands now, but back to her father's house. And Judah says, just just wait. Let Shelah grow up and become a man, and then I'll give him to you. Now, there's two things we should note about this. One, we're going to have to see if he's sincere about it. But two, Think about the time that is passing. We're in the Joseph story. Okay, We've had two boys be killed for doing displeasing things to the Lord and a third still needing to become a man before it moves on. It seems like they had kids in rapid succession, just kind of bullet. But time is passing. And one of the things we should keep in the back of our mind, Joseph has been wasting away in slavery. This is a period of time. Judas had three, three children, and they've become of age in this time period. Well, Judah has been in slavery in Egypt. Excuse me. Well, Joseph has been in slavery in Egypt. So Judah is here saying, go back to your father's house. So after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. So Judah's wife has died. And when the time of mourning, that public mourning we talked about, the ritual mourning, had passed, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she's thinking, okay, has it been long enough? Is Shelah a man now? What's going on? Why am I still here? In my father's house, why has what has been promised to me, why has it not been given to me? So what she do? She removes her widow's garments. 
She covered herself with a veil and she wrapped herself and she sat in the gateway of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. So she went and she scoped out a spot and she sat there waiting to see that Judah was coming. And what did she see? She saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Judah has no hurry, no rush to make sure Shelah goes. And we know why. He's afraid he's going to die too. The Lord will take his life for his evil deeds. So she sees that there's no, no rush, no hurry for the, the vow that's been given to her to be fulfilled. And here's the, the sad thing, the tragic thing about this situation. She has no recourse. She has no legal options. She has no way to force Judah's hand. She's stuck. There's nothing she can do. So what's she do? She decides to take it into her own hands. When Judah saw her, she remember she's wrapped and veiled. She's sitting on the road at the gateway. Judah saw her and he thought she was a harlot for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Identifying markers. Your seal would be your signature, right? Something that shows this is Judah. So she takes the seal and cord and staff that's in his hand. He gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. She leaves. And what's sad, and, and again, we're just seeing the character of Judah. What's he do? I mean, he's so quick to turn into this prostitute and to fulfill that pledge. He's, he's going to send the young goat right away. And yet he won't give his son Shelah to Tamar to fulfill his vow. For his own pleasure, for his own ends, he's quick to act. But when it's to do his duty, to do what's right, he's slow of action. He's a man who is more reserved in, in acting. So, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite. Judah doesn't even have the courage to go up himself and do it. He's like, I wouldn't want to uh, lose any respect in the community for going to this prostitute again. So I'll send my friend to do it. Sends his friend to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, but the friend could not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, where is uh, the temple prostitute who was by the road at Anayim? And they said, there's never been a temple prostitute here. There's, there's, there's no one. What, who are you talking about? So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Again, Judah's very concerned with his own reputation. He's not concerned with Tamar, her status as a widow, her destituteness. But he's sure concerned about his own reputation. Now, 
It was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, the Levitical law, this is Genesis, so this is before the Levitical law is in place. But the Levitical law says that the punishment for adultery, which she was betrothed, by the way, to Shelah, so this would be considered adulterous. The penalty for adultery was to be stoned. It was a, it was a stoning. Only one group of people was reserved to be burned, and that was if it was the daughter of a priest who had committed adultery. And actually, the man would too, by the way. This is not one or the other. This is a dual punishment. But for the daughters of priests, it was so disrespectful, so dishonoring. She would be burned. That was the law. But normally, it would just be, it would just be a stoning. Look at how self-righteous Judah is. No, this is so serious. This is so sinful. This is so awful. She needs to be burned. How dare she? How dare she break her vow to the son that I refuse to give her? Okay. We're going to talk for a minute before we see the conclusion about Judah and who he is. We've seen he's kind of an evil man. He really has a dark heart. Seen it over and over and over again. Now we need to think about where Judah shows up in this text, in the story of Joseph. He shows up really in two, two spots. If you were to take out chapter 38 and pretend it didn't even exist, it wasn't even part of the story, there's two times Judah shows up. He shows up once in Genesis 37, and he shows up again in Genesis 44. Now, I want you to see if you can see the discontinuity between these two men, the Judah of Genesis 37 and the Judah of Genesis 44. The Judah, uh, the Judah of Genesis 37 says this. He's saying to his brother, hey, what profit is it for us to kill our brother? Let's sell him and make him some money off of him, right? Let's make some money off of him. Because Judah is callous and cold-hearted, and he thinks only about himself. Why kill him? Let's at least make some profit off of this. That is a callous and cold-hearted thing to say. In chapter 44, we see Judah again. And what's happening here in chapter 44 is that, remember, he, Joseph has planted the cup in the bag of, of Benjamin. You remember this story? He's planted a golden cup, so it looks like Benjamin stole the cup. And he comes back and he says, the one who has stolen my cup must be my slave. And of course, sure enough, they go through all their packs and no one has it. And they get to the youngest, daddy's favorite. Remember, Joseph's dead. Benjamin's all that Jacob has left of Rachel. And they open that bag, that satchel, and sure enough, Benjamin stole it. And Joseph says, the lad will be my slave. He will be my slave. And Judah says, uh, uh, it's much longer than what I have here. He, he goes this whole speech about what he promised his father and what, what, how important the boy is to his, his father. And then he says this. So Judah said, now, therefore, please let your servant, referring to himself, let me, your servant, remain instead of the lad. I will be a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father 
if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Now, do you see a discontinuity between those two men? At one point, he's ready to sell his brother into slavery. Let's make some money off of him. And in the next moment you see him, I will be the slave. I will take in his stead, I will take his place. Without Genesis 38, that's the Judah you see. Judah selling his brother into slavery. Judah offering to be a slave. What happened in the meantime? Where did this change come from? What changed this man's heart? What changed who he was? The answer is Genesis 38. That's why the story is necessary to make sense of who Judah became. Now we saw who he was. We've seen how evil he is. We've seen how dark his heart is. Now let's go back to our story. Verse 25 of chapter 38. It was while she, Tamar, was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. And as much as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not have intercourse with her again. Okay. What's missed in this passage is how big a heart change Judah has had. This incident, when he sees the things that are his, when he is confronted, when he is rebuked, when he sees evidence of his own sinfulness, his heart is changed. He's transformed in an instant. And the question is, how do I know that? Because we forget what Judah could have done. What Judah could have done in this situation and is missed all too often is he could have said, I don't know who these are. Burn her anyway. These aren't mine. Kill the harlot. But he doesn't. Remember, Tamar is in a situation that she is utterly powerless. She holds no power. Judah holds all the power. She, he could have said, look at me, my community. You know how well respected I am among you. Kill this whore. How dare she? And no one would have batted an eye. Tamar would have been dead. There's not even a question about it. But somehow, in seeing the evidence of his own wrongdoing, and seeing in his very hands what he had done, it's, it's prophetic. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Nathan before David. You remember that story? The prophet Nathan before David, he goes up to him and he says, I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> there was a rich man who had all these sheep, 
and he had a wonderful life, and he was rich and wealthy, and his life was great. And then there was this other man, and he just had one. It was all he had. It was the only thing he, he treasured. It was this one little lamb, and it was all that was in his life. He was alone and miserable, and all he had was this one little possession that he treasured as his own. And you know what the rich man did, David? The rich man went over, and he killed that man, and he took that sheep, all that he wanted. What do you think about that story, David? What's David say? He says, that man should be killed. Same thing. You know what David could have done in that situation? He said, hey, uh, guards, kill this prophet. David was the king. He had ultimate power in the situation. He could have said, hey, guards, uh, let's make sure the story never gets out, by the way, and kill this guy. And let me tell you, it happened to prophets all the time. All of them were killed. Every prophet that Israel ever had, Jesus says it. You killed all the prophets that came to you. Nathan, uh, David easily could have done that to Nathan. But somehow, the story, the evidence, just seeing it laid out, it, it broke something in David. It changed him when he was confronted with what he had done. The same is true of Judah, David's forefather. The tribe from which David comes is Judah. And just like his forefather, David was repentant. And Judah was repentant. When faced with his own evil, he understood it. He understood what he had done with this poor, helpless woman. And so what did he do? He said, before the community, he accepts the shame. He accepts the guilt. He says, she is more righteous than I. She is innocent. I have for I did not keep my vow to give my son Shelah to her. And even that, beyond that, he didn't act like his sons. He didn't continue to go in to use her sexually. It says specifically, he did not sleep with her again. He valued her. He honored her. And the story ends like this. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So she, excuse me, so he was named Peretz. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. This shows again that Zerah was technically born first. He put that little arm out. But his brother overtook him, the younger brother. And we've seen that motif a lot in Genesis, haven't we? That, that younger brother uh, motif overtaking the firstborn. We saw it with, with Isaac and Ishmael. We saw it with Jacob and Esau. We saw it with Cain and Abel. Right? It's, it's been a pattern throughout the, the book. And what's special about this, and we don't even realize, this just seems like an addendum just a weird little aside. 
about who these children are. But again, the Bible is a story. It's, it's one story. And if you know the story, Peretz becomes the father of the line which comes through Boaz, right? Boaz is Peretz's descendant. And, and of course, he marries Ruth. And Boaz, right, they have Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father of David. And David, all the way down the line, is the line of Christ. Peretz is in that line. That's where he comes from. When you're reading Genesis, you're only to Genesis 38, it may seem like, well, this is a weird little thing. But it's about the genealogy, like we've talked about in Genesis. Where is the line coming from? And the line is going to follow on and continue down throughout the generations to bring us to David, to bring us to Jesus. This is a significant little aside. Follow the line of Christ. Follow the line of the king. I think it's important, before I conclude, Aaron, uh, do you want, could you come up and just, just play a little bit? I think it's important, before I conclude, just to think about Judah the repentant. Judah is a deeply, deeply sinful man. I mean, we see it throughout the, throughout the entire passage. We see it over and over and over again, just what type of person he is. He's not a good man. And I think the reality is we look at that and we, we sometimes distance ourselves from it as if, uh, as if it's unrelatable. But the truth is I think it's all too relatable. We all have sins, whether known or unknown. And I'm sure we all have places of our life and times of our life that we would hope no one ever saw. One of the things I love, I've told you this time and time again, that I love about the Bible is these are real people. They're not characters. They're not literary creations. These are people. And in the graciousness of God, he was kind enough to show them like real people. We're not seeing the Instagram version of them where everything looks perfect. Oh, look at this family shot, and look at this family shot, and look at, oh, look at the 12 boys. They're all together in one happy family. No, you see them throwing one of them into a pit and tricking their father that he died. This is not the glamour shot, the, the perfect family, the, the look that everything is all right on the outside, the external. No, the Bible shows people for who they really are, and God in his kindness, and these people in their honesty, in their confession, were real about what they did, were real about who they were. And in God's graciousness, those things, even the darkest, darkest parts of their lives were recorded in holy scripture for us to look in on and see them in their darkest place. And all too often we look in on their darkest places and we say, how dare you? That's disgusting. You disgust me. I'm nothing like you. I would never do that. When they were so kind and so gracious to, to pass these stories through the generations that we might look on their evil 
and see it barren before us, open, naked, vulnerable before us. But the truth is, if, we, if we're honest in our quiet space, in our heart of hearts, I think we recognize ourselves in them. We see our own lives mirrored in who they are. I've learned to not look at them as characters, not look at them as foils, not look at them as creations to go, that's good, that's bad, that's good, that's bad, and, and, and then I will do these good things and not these bad things. I look at them as they are because they're people. I don't want to be so arrogant as to look at them and condemn their life and stand in judgment over them because I know it's all too easy to do that to the people that walk into your church too. The way you treat people, you learn to treat all people. And these are people. And I think particularly in the case of Judah, this is a dark sexual story. And, and all too often, that reality more than anything, the idea of sexual immorality is, is a sin we just cannot abide. And it's, it's unforgivable in our culture, particularly in our church culture. And I just want to change that. It's evil. It's dark. This story is dark. And there's still forgiveness, there's still redemption, there's still a hope to be had. There's still a restoration to, to take place for people. And I guess my prayer for you tonight would be this, is that if you have those dark spots, if you have stories that reflect this or make you think of this or not even just this, any of the dark moments of what it means to be human, my prayer is that you would recognize that there is a God who will forgive you if you are repentant. Look at Judah's life. He went from being a man who sold his brother into slavery to one willing to become a slave in his brother's place. The diametric opposite of what he once was. He went from a sexually immoral man to a pure man. At least it seems that way. And somehow, this dark, evil man where he started became the line, the tribe, the greatest tribe of all the tribes of Israel. The largest, the greatest, the, a kingdom unto itself. And it birthed David. And Judah, in its time, birthed Christ. Now, Judah may not have lived to see those days. I understand that. But that is an honor and a legacy that God bestowed upon him. Because he was a repentant man. So don't think if you have those dark spots. Don't think if those places in your life exist that you would want no one to see. Don't think that those have to be definitive on your life. Don't think that those have to be the defining moment, the thing that will always mark you. Sexual, not sexual, sinful, whatever it is. That doesn't have to be defining because there's a God who will forgive you. You just got to learn to repent. Judah did. If you repent, the Lord is faithful to forgive. He's faithful to purify. 
the Lord will do a miracle work. He will transform you. Like the song Aaron sang tonight about the transformation into the image of Christ, about your heart being shaped and molded into the image of Jesus. God does that work. He is capable. Change is possible. If you learn to put yourself in a place to repent before the Almighty God. So my prayer is if you have those spaces, repent of them. The Lord will change you. And if you're holding on to guilt or pain or, or whatever from things that have been done to you, maybe you're in Tamar's situation or that you have done and you hold on to the weight of that guilt and that shame, the Lord can take care of that too. He can cleanse you from it, make you pure. My other prayer is that for those of us in this room as Christians, we'd learn to look on people with the same heart that God has. We wouldn't look to stand over as arrogant, as judgmental, as, as people who stand in judgment and condemn others for their life, but we'd look at them in a way, yes, call out sin. Yes, tell them the truth. Yes, tell them that maybe even the trajectory or path that their life's headed down if they continue down it. But we look at them in a way that dignifies them as human, that shows that we still love them and honor them, that they still have worth and value, that the lowest human, the darkest you can ever go, the darkest you could possibly imagine, just by virtue of being human, of being made in the image of God, bears dignity and worth and value. Wellspring, when we made this church, Wellspring was meant to be a place where people could find that. That the broken and the church hurt and the sinful and those who may not find a home at, at some other church, a home where there's not much grace, that they could come here and find grace, that they could come here and be welcomed, that they could come here and see that there's a place that will, will talk about the reality of their hurts, the reality of their pain, not dismiss it, not pretend it's not real, address it, treat it as real, treat it as significant, but also also tell them there's something beyond that. That there's a home and a family that still awaits you to come and be a part of it. And that's been our prayer for Wellspring since day one. Love you all. Thankful you're here tonight. Even when we're just few in number, I am so privileged, so grateful have the honor of preaching the word of God to you because it's precious. It's powerful and it's life changing. And when we look at a story like this story of Judah, we too, like Judah, can be changed. Tyler, you come up, lead us in prayer.